Wait, I bl- Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> we got the baby. It's the, yeah. Also, I have a 10 month old in the background. I was going to say that's abolitionist praxis. Babies crying right? around in the background. Yes. <laughs> I know. I've- Welcome to the revolution. Abolition is here. Abolition is here. Babies in the background crying. Yes. Love it. All right. Do you, can you start us off again? I'm so sorry. Yep. Let's do it. This is the Abolition as Resurrection Lent and Easter mini podcast series. Hi, everyone. This is Gia. Hi, everyone. This is Camille. If you are new to our community, welcome. We're so glad that you found us. And if you're not new, welcome back. Today's conversation is on deep community, and we'll be focusing on safety, accountability, mutual aid, community care, and self-care. Abolition cannot happen without being intentional about creating a deep community. We often hear that our liberation is bound up in the liberation of our neighbor, but what exactly does that mean and how do we get there? In this episode, I'm incredibly excited to be in conversation with my good friend, Alonzo Wahid, and my new friend, Reverend L. Dowd. I've had the pleasure of sharing space with both of them while working on different liberation projects. Alonzo has been an incredible collaborator with me for the work I do at the Solidarity Building Initiative. He's one of our facilitators and co-creators for the programs we offer to folks who are detained at the Cook County Jail. And let me tell you, not only are Alonzo and Reverend L brilliant thinkers and community organizers, but they embody deep community. You all are in for a sweet treat. And I have the great pleasure of introducing our guest to you, our listeners. So first we have Alonzo Lee Wahid Sr. He is the founder of Gatekeepers NFP and the organizing director of Equity and Transformation, also known as EAT. He, Gatekeepers is a Chicago-based nonprofit organization whose existence is devoted to the betterment of men. Its team of dedicated staff works tirelessly to eradicate violence and negative behavior among men within the Chicago land area. His role with equity and transformation has allowed him to build social and economic equity for black workers engaged in the informal economy. Through the application of structured organizing, EAT builds sustainable alternatives to harmful state solutions. We also have Reverend L. Dowd, Her preferred pronouns are she, her, and hers. She is a bifurious recent graduate of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, a current PhD student at the Chicago Theological Seminary, the campus minister of South Loop Campus Ministry, and an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. She was formerly a co-conspirator with the movement to hashtag decolonize Lutheranism and currently serves as a board member of the Euro Descent Lutheran Association for Racial Justice. She does community organizing in her city as a board member of Seoul, serves on the clergy advocacy board for Planned Parenthood, writes regularly as part of the vision team for the Disrupt Worship Project, project and facilitates workshops in both secular conferences and Christian spaces. In 2021, she published a book with Broadleaf entitled Baptized in Tear Gas about her conversion from the white moderate to an abolitionist is available now in print, ebook or audiobook. Alonzo and Elle, welcome. I just would love for you guys to share a little bit more about yourselves and why you said yes to this conversation. Um, For me, uh, first of all, I wanna say thank you. Um, I'm truly humbled to be able to be a part of this conversation. It's not every day that an individual from my walk of life, from my background, is actually um, invited to spaces like this. Um, One, 
we're often not seen as experts um, in this field. Um, secondly, is it's often dictated to us on what we should be feeling and why we should be feeling that way. So just to be able to be here um, today does wonders for me. Um, and it's a lot that I want to delve into. Thanks, uh, Alonzo. I'm so honored to be in this conversation with you. And uh, before I knew you were going to be in this conversation, I was excited to participate in this podcast because of the work that Camille and Gia both do. And so I um, really trust the the work that you have both done and, and your leadership and voice. And so I was excited to collaborate with you all. But I also was really excited about the the premise of talking about resurrection and abolition through the lens of Lent or, you know, during the per period of Lent as a, as a Christian pastor. And so it was really something really exciting to me. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, we are so excited that both of you all said yes to join us. Um, so again, thank you for, for being here with us. You know, I had first heard the concept of deep community after a recent experience I had with a stalker. I wrote, I wrote a little bit about that. And at the time, I was really trying to just make sense of what was happening and how I was to respond in light of my own commitments around abolition, which, as we all know, is um, one of those commitments is to really reduce the reliance on police and carcerality. And so I had a colleague of mine, someone who I trust their wisdom and, and I really just value their perspective. And one of the things that he said is that abolition presupposes deep community. And sometimes for folks that don't, that don't have that deep community that presents a challenge. And so that conversation really forever changed me. And I had to really think about how I build community and, um, and, and in ways that it, it, it provides me with some safety, not only for myself, but also for, for those who are near to me. So, so Elle, um, you wrote in your book, um, Baptized in Tear Gas, you have a chapter around community care and resistance. And it made me think about this concept of deep community. And Alonzo, I have seen you in action um, in many different places. And, and what I can definitely say is that um, the way that you care for your people in your community, in my mind, it reminds me of deep community. So as a place, as a starting point, can both of you, um, whoever wants to jump in first, describe um, how you see deep community? Like, what does that mean to you? So um, I, I have to go back to um, the work that I'm doing um, currently with equity and transformation. One of our um, best practices that's embedded deeply in our model is that unlike other non-for-profits, we don't go into communities and ask the community to become um, members. We actually go to the community and become a member of the community, all right? So um, that right there is what deep community is to me. Um, that's what it is for me. Because what happens is we don't then go and dictate to the community, okay, this is your problem. Um, this is what you need to do to solve the problem. We actually, in becoming a part of the community, we're there with them saying, we're going through the very same thing that you're going through. And what would you do to get out of this situation? And this is what I would do and we have some resources um, in case you need that support. But what happens is we end up standing them up, right? Instead of having to hold them up. And then because what happens is once, if usually individuals will come into the community, and when I say individuals, it's um, other organizations, not-for-profits, for-profits, it, it doesn't matter. 
individuals will come into the organization, come into the community and say, it's a hot topic right now, right? So it's something that we want to do right now to show that, you know, we're in support or not in support of what's going on. We come in and we actually become a part of that community. So we're not going nowhere. All right. Um, and the other part is we have to be invited by the community. We don't just parachute in and say, we're here to solve your problems. And it's individuals that have reached out to us and said, you know what, we see what you all are doing, come on in, right? Um, and, and for me, that's not something that we just look over, especially with us as a, um, people. It's often that individuals just kick in, kick in our doors um, to the, our communities and come in and just telling us what we should look like, what we should talk like, how we should dress. And often they're not even a part of the community. Uh, when it start getting dark, they get right on up out of there. Um, and then you don't hear from them anymore until again, it's something that can get them some um, notoriety, something that can make sure that they're hitting the um, front page where they can say, you know what? We came out and we supported um, West Garfield. Or you know what? That was an issue going on in Joliet. So this is why they're there. But once that issue um, is no longer the hot topic, not saying that the issue was dealt with, it's just not the hot button topic no more. The individuals in the community are still going through that. Poverty is still there. Violence is still there. Lack of resources are still there. But the individuals have left. Right. So we um, have a commitment to stay in those communities, to support those communities, because we are part of those communities and is is definitely. We, we definitely are a deep community, because for me, a lot of the times I have to um, just with a, one of the best practices that we have to also do is I have to pull back and understand that um, I am a leader. Um, because it could be so relatable, right? Where I, I can remember how it feels to not have food. I can remember how it feels to be out all night trying to figure out where you're going to sleep. I can remember what it's like to be demonized and ostracized, right? By your community or by individuals that said that they were there to help you. So that's what deep community is for um, me. That's what deep community is for equity and transformation. And that's why we do this work. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That resonates with me. A lot of that resonates with me as well. I think um, in the book chapter that you referenced when it's a, it's a chapter about community care, I started thinking about community care, kind of similar, similar sort of circumstances to what Alonzo was talking about with how some issues are like really hot button or like on the front of the news or, or whatever, like some things are just like the thing to talk about. And it felt like, it feels like often, you know, self-care bubbles up as that thing, right? Like um, something's going on justice wise or just like in general, it's like very sexy to talk about self-care. And it seems like to me, a lot of times self-care has been weaponized and hyper-individualized so that it's like self-care is another thing on our long to-do list. And then just another thing that we can fail at, um, right? Like you gotta take care of your kids, pay your bills, take care of your job, do all this, you know, do all this other stuff. Also don't forget your self-care. Um, and if you somehow don't have time for self-care, then it's your failure. Right. And so I thought a lot, especially, you know, in liberation movements about how important it is to care for ourselves. And yet there are these structures and systems in place that make it impossible for many people to care for themselves. And the ability to care for ourselves is like 
super, super, super disproportionately displaced, right? The people who are suffering the most, the people who are at the front line of movements are often the people who are least likely to be able to access that kind of care that's needed to care for themselves. And so, of course, you know, in our own worlds, in our own neighborhoods, in our own ways, it's important for us to like take time to care for ourselves as a revolutionary act, but even more revolutionary, I think, is looking at these structures and asking the questions of why it is so hard for us to care for one another and to build alternative communities where everyone has a chance to rest, everyone has a chance for leisure, everyone has what they need. And so that's what deep community is for me. It's knowing the people around us deeply and caring about what they need materially in their lives, emotionally as whole people and saying like, yeah, we're going to work together to make this happen. Systems of oppression that are plaguing our communities, the cis-heteropatriarchy, capitalism, white supremacy, those systems are working together. And so they only benefit when we sort of silo ourselves and think hyper-individualistically. And so if those systems of oppression are working together, we have to work together for the cause of liberation and we have to work together to care for each other. That, um also brings to mind um, for me, during the beginning of um, the, the COVID um, pandemic, one of the issues that had came out was how are we gonna take care of ourselves, right? And with Equity and Transformation being a base building organization um, with us being a part of the community, one of the aspects that we was able to look at um, because we was right on the ground when all of this happened and we're in it we're not we're not constructed in a way whereas we have individuals that can dictate to us how we're going to move or um, what we can and we can't do everyone um, that's a part of our organization from the top down from the founder the executive director um, all of our directors are all individuals that have been um, impacted, directly impacted, which means that all of these individuals have been incarcerated before, right? So with that being said, and us being a part of the community, once um, COVID had happened, we was right there on the streets with our base, right? Um, and then being right there, we was able to turn on a dime, being able to make a decision to say, while everybody else was running out, um, taking all of the toilet tissue, taking all of the water from the grocery stores. We was like, they don't need water and um, toilet tissue, right? This is a pandemic that's dealing with a virus. You need to boost your immune system. So what we was able to do was go and create a COVID life kit. And with that COVID life kit, we also understood that because we as a people are like, we can, when we're out there on Madison and Pulaski, we see individuals in wheelchairs. We see individuals walking with their canes. It's like, who's going to help the individuals with the disabilities, right? Um, so as we formed our COVID life kit, we made sure that the individuals with disabilities will also be able to access that COVID life kit. And we've had everything in the life kit that you will actually need to fight off the virus. And one of the things that was included, and, and, and thank you so much, um, for bringing this up, it was, we also wanted to make sure that you had somebody to connect to. So inside our COVID life kit, we had pod mapping. Who is the person that I contact in case of an emergency? And that was so profound because a lot of, so what we will have if, um, you're, if you know anything about pod mapping is 
you have at least five individuals that's or major institutions that you should be able to connect to in time of a crisis. The number one institutions that individuals was looking at connecting to was the Salvation Army and the church. That was it. All right. And so it was like outside of that, who else would you connect to? They didn't say the fire department. They didn't say the police department. They didn't say the hospital. It was the churches and the Salvation Army. Um, and then from that, it was also connected to family. And one of the biggest things that we um, realized and found out with that is that even in family, it was only one or two people that they would look at as a resource. Now, they may have five or four siblings, but they didn't count them as a resource. So that was um, very profound um, for us. But with this, we was able to build up through this um, tree um, calling where individuals will say, well, I'll call you, then they'll call two other people. But the most important part was able being able to list who I can go to in, if I'm in need of resources and what resource could they um, supply. And that has been um, profound for us. And we was able to do a lot of great um, base building with that and being able to use that outside of just uh, um, emergency situation. We was able to see even outside of emergency to prepare before the emergency. And this is how you start building community. Yeah, I, I was thinking a lot while you were speaking about, especially when you said like the places that people could get help were the churches. And I was thinking about how I'm like so glad that that's true in some neighborhoods and also thinking about how bad white churches are at that and that the way that white churches try to build community is with a top-down charity model that's like super colonizing. And so it's not really mutual aid, right? It's not this, it's not this aspect. Uh, true community recognizes, like we've said, that our liberation is bound up in one another. And so realizes that you know the attitude shouldn't be look at me with all this stuff isn't it nice of me and to allow those people to have this right mutual aid recognizes that when we help one another we're helping ourselves and that we have a stake in this um that we sort of live and die together and um that we'll succeed only as communities and and not necessarily if we try to do this all, all on our own like trying to do it all on your own the hyper individualism is such like a symptom of white supremacy. So yeah. I really think a lot about, um, about like mutual aid, as opposed to the way that white churches frequently do this, like top-down charity work. And I think sometimes there's been churches who then are like abandon, uh, sort of that kind of community work because they're like, well, now that we care more about justice or we understand that charity can be really toxic, we're, we're like not going to provide sort of emergency aid to people. Um, and I think that it's so essential for us to be meeting people's emergency needs while still having that framework and that lens of like the ultimate goal, which is building a society in which everyone has what they need to flourish. Right. And we're sort of building that and having glimpses of that as we do mutual aid, as we share our resources together. I think obviously the example I always give is, you know, the black Panther party and how they had their community clinics they had their free breakfast program, right? Um, and they called these programs survival pending revolution. And the idea was what good is a revolution if it comes and we're all too hungry to fight anyway, right? Or like all of us starved and we're not even here. We have to make it together. And I think that organizations like yours and communities that are not like necessarily white suburban communities 
have more naturally realized this, that we have to take care of one another, that we are bound to one another. And that's one of the ways that white supremacy hurts white people as it silos us and makes us think that we are separate from one another in a way that obviously harms, you know, BIPOC people in particular, but also is really detrimental to us. One of the other things that we did um, throughout COVID was mutual aid, right? Yeah. Um, and, but the way that we did mutual aid and we, in the beginning, right, we received some backlash because it was like, hey, you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that um, that way. And But what our executive director, um, Richard Wallace, decided was that our mutual aid was going to be going straight to the community and putting the money into their hands and trusting that they knew what to do with it. We didn't have to tell them what they should be doing with it. They didn't have to come sign up for no classes. They didn't have to um, say that they was going to be a member of equity and transformation. We knew where the money was needed and we went to the community and we put the money in their hands. Um, we was the only ones that did that. Um, and, and how I know that this was before the stimulus checks came out, right? And one of the things about the stimulus checks that when they came out, for you to get a stimulus check, you had, they looked at your tax returns, right? And this is how they knew where to mail the stimulus checks to. The issue with that process was we work with the informal community, which means these individuals do not have nine to fives, right? They do not have W-9. So how was they going to get their stimulus check? One of the things that came out later after they figured that part out, right? And they made it over that barrier. One of the other things that came out was that it was plenty of individuals that was incarcerated that was supposed to get stimulus checks that they didn't even think about, right? So this is why we come up with alternative solutions because as Pastor Ellie said earlier, right? It's this mindset that look at what we have and, and you should be grateful that we're sharing this with you, right? Where, and they look at that as mutual aid. And we saw this directly when in the more affluent communities, this is where they went and they took everything off the shelves because I can afford to buy five bundles of um, tissue. And I don't care if you don't, if you don't have any. And I can get all of the water and it doesn't matter. And hopefully you would one day be able to be in a position such as mine where you could do the same, right? But when you went to our communities, the water and the tissue stayed on the shelves because they didn't even, they don't even have stores in their community. They're getting their water and their tissue and their diapers and their milk from the gas station because they're living in food deserts already, right? So this is a total different mindset that individuals for me constantly overlooked because they're not having deep community and they do not, and they're not able to relate because for them is, this is what my community looks like and I made it, I, I'm accomplished, right? So that in itself is a blessing for me. And if I decide to share, right, what I've been given with, then that's where the charity come in. And that's the mutual aid versus all of this, the whole world, was given to us by God, and we're all just good stories of it. So what are you doing with what's been given to you? Actually, how are you managing that? And the first thing is at least a tenth of that should be given to someone else automatically, right? Because it's not yours. It's really all God's. 
and he's giving it to all of us and it's us managing it well. And that's definitely sharing it with our brothers and sisters. I love that. I love hearing all of that. And you're right, the, the truth is that the world and its creation is an equitable resource and that God created the world. People say, oh, God created the world for himself. Like, no, God created the world to be shared, which means that resource sharing is is biblical, is, is the way forward. Um, I just want to, put some pieces together after hearing the both of you, like what the both of you said. And it's, it's so, it's so profound in that we are so reliant. Um, if you are in the world of Christianity, you're reliant on like the church and you're, you're like indoctrinated to rely on the church for, um, to be the, the place of charity. Um, but outside of the church, there's also like the nonprofit industrial complex, which is so incredibly perverse and has the capacity to be incredibly corrupt, especially when you're looking at like the world of white philanthropy. And what it does is it, it really does order society to look towards luxury as, as what is um, necessity, right? So I, I, we all remember, like, as you guys said, the tissue paper, toilet papers, um, being sold out. But I, I remember that I like went to 7-Eleven and was like, there's hella hand sanitizer here. Um, like, right. And I was like, okay, I was look at me having anxiety attack in Costco and then getting all my supplies at 7-Eleven across the street from me. (laughs) But, but when we center like what is luxurious, um, as defined by whiteness, there really is no, no, no need for deep community. And community becomes appropriated, and it's this word that's, uh, um, yeah, that's appropriated, as, as you're both saying. And I keep on thinking about that in regards to, like, self-care, how self-care is such a co-opted word. Um, and I just, I, I want to thank you both for showing how creating, how, how the work that you're doing to create community cultures that focus on necessity and not luxury is really promoting collective care and community care and developing deep community rather than focusing on the individual self, especially since we're still in this time of crisis. So what is revolutionary and what you are creating um, and what you are doing at this time is, yeah, it's the way towards liberation. It's not the way towards making sure the individual has the need, but in order to, you're creating like networks and pods, um, looking at at the platform or the example that the Black Panthers created um, and making sure that, that we are sustained as people versus we are receiving as charitable cases. So, so for us at Equity and Transformation and deeply for myself, because I, I deal with this often um, on a personal level, Whereas we always remember that um, J. Edgar Hoover had weaponized the government against the Black Panther Party, saying that that they would that would not be a rise of a Black Messiah, right? And, and, and with that being said, the only thing that they were doing was teaching individuals how to be independent of the government, yeah. right? And that is what's so dangerous that is saying for uh, the government was saying for us to continue to be the leaders, right? We have to have individuals that's at the bottom that were looked at as capital for us to be able to survive in this capitalistic society by having them continuing to be dependent on us. 
So this is why they were afraid of the food programs, the um, shoe programs, right? The um, no one understand your rights because these individuals are saying, hey, listen, we can survive independent of you, right? Which brings, brings me to now that is self-care, right? When you're, when you're understanding that you have the potential to take care of yourself, right? And you're not dependent on another mechanism or basically the government to do that for you. It's taking you out of that mindset of this is what they should be doing for me to this is what I can definitely do for myself. And this is what we can do for ourselves as a people. Now we start opening our mind to all of the resources that we have within ourselves, all of the potential that we have within ourselves, how creative we could be and how with that, right, individuals can't dictate to us what we can and cannot do because that was the part that they didn't talk about, right? When they said, well, okay, we'll give you section eight, but you can't have a, a um, father figure or a male living in their home. So then this was a way to tear apart family, right? Um, when they say, yeah, we'll give you the, um, that time it was food stamps, but we'll give you the link or the snap, you know, but then you have to fit this criteria here. How about trusting us with the resources that we know what to do with the resources if they're giving to us, right? Because that's a big part that what it's actually saying is that we don't trust you to know what to do. We don't trust you to be a full human. We don't trust you to have enough sense of how to take care of yourself. So we have to always watch over you. So you'll never be independent, right? You'll always be in a childlike mindset. And that's how we deal with you right? Um, and it's breaking those bonds, breaking those chains, setting yourself apart from that, saying that, no, we are a full, whole, complete people who understand and know what to do and know how to do it and have been doing it a whole lot longer than you all and have been truly successful at it. And it's get out of our way and let us do what we know how to do. Um, and for me, that's what true liberation is. And that's why it becomes so personal. That's so good, Alonzo. Were you going to say something else? Yeah, but Gia, go ahead. I was just going to say, I just wanted to, to know, and then also kind of transition us to, to the next question, um, is that I, what I've heard from both of you too, is that part of mutual aid, part of deep community is really, it's, it's um, deconstructing, challenging, resisting white supremacy culture, yes. right? And so what you just named, Alonzo, was like paternalism. And the way that paternalism is embedded um, in, in, in our culture, in our, in our institutions, and the way that we build community. And so this kind of this is gonna lead me into the, to the next question, but Elle, I also wanna give you an opportunity to, to, to finish what you were gonna say. Um, is that as, as a lot of what we've talked about is, is kind of like, um, uh, yes, it's building within, and then also a lot of kind of like external kind of like systemic change, but within our own, with, as, as we are creating communities and within our interpersonal relationships and creating this deep community, how do we start to center accountability instead of perpetuating logics of punishment in the ways in which we are engaging with one another to build this deep community? Um, so whoever wants to kind of take a stab at that or whoever wants to answer that first, um, feel free to jump in. Elle, you just want to get us started? Sure. Yeah, I think... Um... I think sometimes because we have been just immersed in such a carceral society that when we hear words like accountability, we just like automatically, automatically like copy paste punishment, 
right? Um, and so there's like a lot of emotions that come up when we talk about accountability, because on the one hand, we need to be able to like protect each other, protect ourselves. And on the other hand, we're not trying to replicate these systems that we're trying to dismantle here. And so it can be really, really hard. And something that's been really important to me in thinking about accountability is that realizing that in many cases, accountability is like a chance for transformation. It can be the most loving thing that we can do for one another to say like, hey, you can't actually treat me like that. I want to have a real relationship with you or maybe not. Maybe our relationship will transform, but this is the opportunity to make that happen, right? So often instead there's a conflict between us and we sort of avoid each other as opposed to coming together and saying, hey, there needs to be some accountability here. This accountability is rooted in love, my love for myself, my love for you, my love for this community. This is the door that we can walk through to make something better. There's no guarantee that everything's just going to be great, right? But this is the chance. We're giving each other the chance for something better. We're getting our, giving ourselves a chance for something better. We're making space for mutual transformation. So accountability can feel like, you know, anytime, because we're so used to being punished, anytime that we are held accountable, it can feel like we're being punished. But true transformative kinds of accountability are not punishments. They're opportunities for a deeper relationship and for us to sort of become our best selves and live into our values more fully. I think that um, what you said is so profound. I think that we have to clearly get away from the definitions that they gave us. Like who said that that's what it was, right? Um, especially after we know you really co-opted all of this from us. But then that's another that's another conversation, right? But to be able to say that accountability, what about if we looked at accountability that is not negative or positive, that is an experience that I'm having, right? And that I should be able to be totally transparent and true to myself to say whether or not I'm not comfortable with that because I think that we're in a place right now in our culture where it's okay and it's accepted just to be phony, to make everybody else comfortable. And we as a people have always been um, in a place to make everybody else comfortable, right? When we're truly uncomfortable, like we should hold our head down and not look you in your eye, right? To make you comfortable. Like, why are you threatened by me looking you in your eye? So when we start talking about accountability, I believe that we do have to get away from the definitions that they have gained, get given us and say, we have to define what that is, all right, and what it means to us to be accountable. Because once a person can be true to themselves, then they can be true with us, right? Now we can deal with the real person because imagine an individual and I see this, I've seen this a lot um, in the workplace where everybody pretends to be one way in the workplace because this is the way it's structured here, all right? But all the time, they don't even like each other, don't even want to work with each other, right? So then I'm asking myself, how much work could have actually got accomplished? How, more, how much more could have not only gotten done, but what type of relationships could we have had if everyone was truly truthful? Saying, I don't like people going into my lunch when you didn't buy it, right? How about saying, 
that this environment makes me uncomfortable? How many times do we place ourselves and force ourselves to be in places that's one, not only uncomfortable, but we probably shouldn't have been there anyway. And we force that upon ourselves. And I think that um, withholding others accountable, we have to first hold ourselves accountable to say how much do we put ourselves through to make everybody else comfortable. And once we, once we take the lid off of that, right, we can actually start delving into, if I wanna be truly accountable, to say not only how I feel, but what I'm actually going through. What do I look like jumping on a um, meeting, right? When what's really going on with me is one, I don't wanna be at the meeting and it's because I have all these personal issues that's going on with me, that's gonna prevent me from actually being able to be my true self. Um, so I'm not even giving 100% of who I am because of something that's going on with me personally. And then added to that, and then I, I step back, but added to that, how come what's going on with me becomes secondary to what's going on to, with the organization? Like, why, why am I not a priority? Why is it that the organization has priority over me when I'm the one who helps to make the organization what it is? So that, that's what it is for me um, when we look at accountability and, and, and some of the things that we can change with that. Hmm. I... I'm receiving everything that you're saying and I, I'm going to journal about this. <laughs> um, what, so what, what, I, what I'm hearing and what's coming to mind um, to see if I can like contextualize this is that um, these, this language for what is good, right? A accountability, community, um, mutual aid. Um, we are first conditioned to essentially like villainize it, I'm gonna say, under, under like capitalism and white supremacy and, and the punishment systems that we have. Um, and, and I think that when it comes to moving from individual to community and then from community to deep community, um, for a lot of people, the assumption is that we could, we could get lost. Um, and, then, and, and then we would like lose parts of ourselves to the community or maybe depending on like what spiritual community you're coming from, that is kind of how you're indoctrinated to believe that like you have to sacrifice yourself for the collective. Um, I, what I'm hearing from both of you, Elle and Alonzo, is that in deep community, self-reflection is really essential because self-reflection leads to accountability. It leads to being able to change and be, and being able to go from knowing what your needs are and how we, and how to address your needs um, so that the collective is cared for. Um, can you let me know if, if, if that's correct, if, if, if there's anything that I'm missing there, or if there's like a, a, a deeper dive that maybe um, is in my own blind spot, in my own like blind spots to understanding this part of deep community? I think that, um, and Gia, you can correct me um, if I'm wrong. One of the uh, um, Ubuntu um, proverbs is I am because we are, we are because I am. And that answers that, all right? The community will be better as I'm better. That's why how my, you know, the organization will be better if I'm better, right? And I'm better because the organization is better, right? I'm better because the community is better. So that, for me, that answers that. And I think when we when we sidestep that and we get away from that, because we've been 
taught and indoctrinated with, it's just about the organization, right? It's just about the model, the structure. When who, who said that? Like, how did we forget the people, right? Um, and then especially when we um, think about it through um, faith, through the faith, for the faith-based community is I'm a part of the church, right? So how do you overlook me? How is it just about coming and paying the tithes and this is who this is and this these are all of the principles that I should abide by? What about me as a person? Because I believe that we got away from actually um, making disciples to just being all right with having followers, um, especially when it comes to the um, faith-based community. But for me, it's overall, like, are we truly building our people up to be leaders, right? Or is it just sign your name on here and say that you was a part of this program? Like, and we have to get away from it. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of the imagery that we have from scripture about the body of Christ, right? This idea that there's all different kinds of people. We all have all different kinds of gifts. We have all different kinds of passions and experiences and that we really need each other. And, you know, scripture says like the ear can't do it without the foot and, you know, right. Like we're all kind of working together and no piece is more important than another piece. No person is more important than another person. As we're focusing on like the wholeness, we also have to see the individual parts and like cherish them and take care of them. And that's true for people too. It reminds me again, as we were talking about, um, what is it that threatens empire and the state and the status quo? Uh, and Alonzo, you're talking about how that knowledge that we can care for each other, that we don't need some outside paternalistic figure to tell us what to do. Um, it reminds me also of something that is like deeply threatening to the state and the empire and status quo is that kind of solidarity is recognizing that each individual person is very, very crucially important and that we are not whole as a community if each person is not whole. So that's again, thinking about the ways that the state has disrupted liberation movements. One of the reasons that Fred Hampton was targeted here in Chicago was because of the ways that he built solidarity across differences. He was able to see all these different communities that were divided by systems of oppression and fighting over scraps and say, we can't keep treating each other like the enemy when these systems and the elite are the ones that are putting us in this position in the first place. We don't have to fight over scraps. We can take care of ourselves, take care of each other. And as we take care of each other, we're taking care of ourselves and vice versa. So I think, you know, the, one of the reasons that it's so important for us to center the most vulnerable and the most, the people on the front line of movements and people who are directly impacted, directly affected is not only because that's the right thing to do, but also because it's the most effective, right? Like the communities that have already had to figure out how to care for themselves and one another outside of these structures are the experts on this. Abolition is not gonna be led by people like me, right? Like it's going to be led by the people who were living out abolition on their own and just didn't have like a name for it. Right. So that's just normal. It's just life. So those are like the true experts and like the people that we need to listen to. And that's the work that you're doing. Alonzo is like that frontline work being like a directly impacted person and saying like, yeah, we know the way we know the way to freedom. Thank you for that. Um, I know that um, for me, one of the one of the things that resonate with me, um, and we touched on it lightly, 
is that we've been doing this all our lives because this was the only thing that we knew and it was we had to survive, right? But then it comes in and get co-opted and it's like, oh, look at them. We're so brilliant over here. And it's like, no, we've been doing that again all our lives, right? Um, so to now be a knowledge, right? I never ever thought in the no one would call me an expert in anything, right? It was always that for me as a black man, um, a straight black man, formerly incarcerated, having to deal with the barriers of just not only being heard, but as you're being heard is through the lens of that was an individual that did wrong, right? That was, so it was already being um, demonized, ostracized, um, looked at as though you were the um, scourge of the earth, right? And then what compounds that is that it's often done by individuals that's there to say that they're there to help. Because it's good for me to sit at the table and tell my story. But then when I start saying, that's not what you should do, and this is a better way, it's like, whoa, know your place, right? <laughs> you, you can't say that to us. We're here to tell you how to um, get this done. And then I have to sit back and look at it fail. And then they come back and they say, well, what, what was it that you were thinking about that we should do? But then I have nothing to do with it as, as it's been executed. And I'm um, not getting any credit as it's been implemented um, because it's like they came up with that. All right, but they got that information from me and they wouldn't even have a knowledge that um, first right because they was telling me, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I should just sit there and listen and be glad that I was able to come tell my story. So again, to be able to be in a place like this and actually being acknowledged as an expert, being an individual that has been on the front lines all my life. Like when they asked me when, I, when did I start doing this work, um, about the age of um, 11 years old when I had to start learning how to take care of myself and my family. So, and I've been doing that since then and I'm doing that to this day, um, learning how to take care of my people learning how um, in taking care of my people that I'm taking care of myself, learning how to not only educate and empower, but then also truly love and trust one another and knowing that I could love and trust myself in doing that. Mm, thank you so much for sharing. Um, this reminds me, I, I, think, I think it's the theory of multiple intelligences but it, it reminds me of something that a piece of a conversation that G and I had for a previous episode of this podcast, um, and it was on healing and it was from Dr. Reverend Nakia. And she had talked about how in order to study abolition, we have to understand what um, impoverished black mothers are doing to survive and we have to change their narrative um, from it being that they are like stealing that they're committing crimes to they are they these are their survival tactics and there's nobility in survival right and I, I'm thinking of that Alonzo as you said that you you don't um, you haven't been considered as an expert of this but I know for myself like I I have spent multiple years of my life relying on academia to be the place that validates the work, where as I'm learning perpetually with abolition, it's not that academia validates abolition, it's that abolition has been happening and academia is not, it's not so much trying to understand, but it's like 
doing as what Bell Hooks has done, where academia was just trying to put it into the conversation. So the academics who are abolitionists, um, especially the theorists, they're learning from those like yourself who are on the ground. Um, and it's like, as Elle said, right, I'm not the one that's going to be leading the movement towards liberation. It's going to be those who are who are on the ground. So those who we consider to be the experts who are academic theorists, they they have a place, but they're not the ones, right? Alonzo, the work that you do, the communities that you build, Elle, the work that you do, the communities that you build, the deep communities that you both make, that is where we're seeing abolition in, in action. And that's where we're seeing um, like the true expertise of the work being done. And, and for that, I just want to say thank you and, and recognize just how essential both of you are and the genius that exists, especially within you, Alonzo, that genius that you've had since you were 11, how you were spreading forth that genius in order for us to know liberation and in order for us to be free. Thank you um, for that again. So I, we're gonna, we're kind of coming towards the end of our time together. And I do, I, I will share, um, I wanna share a little bit of something, but I first wanna ask you all, is there any last, um, anything that you all would like to kind of share that maybe we haven't touched on? Um, yeah, so we'd I'd like to give some space for that. One of the things that um, was sitting with me as I was preparing for this conversation was the sanctification piece, right? Actually being set apart to do a work, right? And um, I was just asking myself over and over again um, how God has strengthened me and set me apart um, to be able to do this work because this work is not easy. Um, on no count, it takes tolls on you um, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, as well as um, physically and financially, right? Um, but to continue to keep on doing the work, I know that I can only do this work because of the strength that's being given to me by God. Um, so I definitely wanted to, um, and, and it was like, but start right off, I was like, I'm not sanctified. Right. But I say um, he truly has sanctified me. He truly has had, I truly have went through that sanctification process because it's only through God that I could um, do this work. And it's a continuous process. It's not just you're sanctified. I, I have to continue to go through it and continue to ask for the strength to be able to um, do this work. Um, and I just wanted to be totally transparent with that, that this is not an easy walk. And a lot of the struggle um, has to deal with individuals saying that they are about you um, and that they're in support of you when um, later you find out that it was all under um, a predatory guise, right? It was how they could benefit. And it's practiced so widely and it's so common now that it's like, that's the thing to do. And that's how you actually succeed, right? Where I'm going to benefit because I'm going to come and learn your story and get you to tell a story. And then I'm going to go write a grant about it over here. Right. So um, and I've, I've seen that happen um, so many times. But to be able to be in a place where I feel safe and I trust the individuals um, who handle me well. Um, I'm just, again, want to thank you all for that, um, being able to be here 
to be able to be a part of this conversation. I think I, uh, you know, it's a little bit of my lane to speak to white churches. And I know that there's some white church people who are subscribing to this podcast because maybe in the past year or two, abolition is like a new concept and they're, they're interested. So I think that, um, I just wanted to share particularly to like white church people who are sort of confused about where to get involved, or they're kind of like, I've recognized the world as it is, isn't right and it's messed up and that there should be something new and I can sort of envision what that would be and I am hearing the voices of the prophets in the street telling me what it can be but I don't really know my piece of this that's like the people that I I run into a lot like white church people who are in that place um and something that has been really helpful for me is Adrienne Marie Brown's uh concept of fractals right Adrienne Marie Brown is an emergent strategist who talks about making big changes with like relatively small interactions. And one of those concepts, which is based in nature is that of fractals where there's these patterns in nature that repeat on various levels of scale. Uh, she gives the example of, you know, like a fern, you see like a plant that's a fern and there's like all these leaves, but then on the leaves, there's like tiny little baby leaves. It's like leaves on leaves. Like it's very meta. Um, and the concept that we can learn from that is that the things that we practice on the small scale reverberate into the large scale, right? Or in church language, the times that we are faithful in small ways echo into the cosmos and into eternity. And so a lot of churches, like a lot of white Christians are sort of like, I don't know my piece in this. And I would say that like a lot of the things seem really simple, but they're really, really counter countercultural and therefore they're revolutionary. It's revolutionary to reflect on like who you are and what is important to you and what are your passions, what makes you angry. It's revolutionary to vulnerably ask those questions of people around you and get to know them, right? It's revolutionary to be vulnerable enough to ask like who's already doing this work and then to be you know, humble enough to follow those who are the experts who are on the front lines, who are most vulnerable, all of those things like maybe sound like small things, but the fact is they're really, 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 really important. And they echo on the large scale. And so we can practice abolition in our homes, in our churches and the way we interact with each other, the way we parent our children, right? We don't have to parent our children through this lens of like carceral punishment. We can parent our children collaboratively and learn from them and, and, um, help them grow. We can do that same thing in our churches, right? We can, we can create structures within our communities that reflect these values and the little things that we do, they do, they make, they make a difference. So we think churches, you know, what are the things that you have? What are the resources that you have? How can you build those relationships? Uh, in the 2020 uprising, I think about Grace and St. Luke's in Logan Square. And uh, those are churches that I'm involved in. And they're right by the mayor's house. And so during 2020, they took you know, the risk of opening up the church as protest support. Many of the members are also protesting, but using that church building, using that resource to be like, we got bathrooms, we got phone chargers, we got first aid, you know, we got water, we got snacks. Uh, you can get out of the heat. You can come use the bathroom. We won't let the police in here because this is a space that we want to be safe. Um, maybe our church could do something like that, right? If those of you who are listening, that's not like a huge thing. It feels huge because it's so different than how we normally use our church buildings and our resources. 
but it's a relatively small thing that can make a really huge difference in building that sense of deep community and really building that solidarity. So, um, be encouraged, listen to the voices of the prophets in the streets, people like Alonzo, people who are out there doing the work. I do believe that the future is coming and that God will win. And there's going to be a time without prisons and policing. There's a time before the system. There will be a time after. And the exciting thing is God is inviting you to be a part of it. So figure out how, how you can plug in. So good. All of this has been so amazing. Um, you know, what you said, L is been the part of the theme of this podcast is that abolition is an everyday practice. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. It should be radically transformative. Um, and so, so yes. So thank you. Um, some of what I've heard, I just kind of also want to just kind of just do like a, like a, like a recap. Um, the, what I've heard from you all is deep community. Part, part of the elements of deep community is to be seen. Um, it's to be a part of a community, not to come in and to co-opt a community or exploit a community. Um, and then, and then this, and that part of our safety um, is is that when one of us is not well, none of us are well. And so, part of the safety is is that is that we have communities that are well with individuals who are well, and and we can't do that if we're not going to do it as a collective. But there still is this individual responsibility that we have to ourselves because we are in community with other people. Um, and what you talked about, Alonzo, with Ubuntu, yes, I am because we are, and we are because I am. The individual doesn't collapse in the collective. The collective doesn't collapse in the individual. But we can do both. We can hold both of those. Um, and 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 part of this is is how we. We also act out our solidarity with one another. Um, and so, and, and I just, other thing that you said that you, that you kind of, that you, you embedded it in the conversation, Alonso, was when you were talking about that COVID kit um, and, and you gave something really concrete about how you can do safety. And it was through the pod mapping. Like you can build deep community by being completely aware of who is in your community that is safe, that you can rely on and having a conversation with them. And you all making this agreement together that if I'm in, that if I'm in need, I can reach out to you. And so, I mean, that's accountability, right? Like, and so, so that is brilliant. It's concrete. It's something that we can all do right now that will help us reduce our reliance on policing and prisons. So Thank you all. Um, you all gave us so many concrete examples of how to practice mutual aid. So this has just been such a rich conversation with so much wisdom and so many concrete practices. Um, and I just, I want to kind of um, move us into our rapid fire questions. Um, so, so the first question is, what word or image comes to mind when you think of resurrection? I can answer this because I have, you probably can't super see, but this is a, like a butterfly on my, um, on my hand, my grandma, June of blessed memory, her favorite symbol of the resurrection was a butterfly. So I always think about that. And anytime I see a butterfly, I'm like reminded of her, but also of the resurrection and the ways that like, you know, caterpillars go in that cocoon and become soup and it's like a hot mess and like, who knows what's going to happen. And then out comes this like beautiful transformed creature and societies can be resurrected in that way as butterflies and individuals and communities too. I just Thank have to you. say something really quick. I'm sorry, Alonzo. So I have a tattoo on my, I just got my half sleeve. 
And it literally is the transformation from caterpillar to butterfly. And so I just, I just love that you just, that you just said that. So I'm sorry, I had to, I had to share that. Go ahead, Alonzo. Thank both of you all um, for the butterfly analogy. For me, when you said it, I had to um, pause um, and being totally transparent, had to keep the tears from coming back. Because when I think of resurrection, I think of um, the individual walking outside that prison cell. Right. Um, and, and I have to pause there because regardless of what an individual tell you, it's not the same person that went in there. Right. Um, and it could be good or it could be bad. You know, again, we have to um, be careful with the terminology that we're using. It's a new experience this individual is about to have. And they are a new being. They're not who they were when they went in there. Right. Um, so that's what I think of um, resurrecting whatever, who and whatever they were when they went in, this is totally different. They're leaving that behind and whatever is going to come out, the rest of the world is going to have to learn how to deal with. Mm, thank you so much. <sighs> There's, it's just so rich. There's just so much you can't like, you can't hold it in your body or I can't. Um, our second question is, what is one way that you personally practice abolition in your everyday life? <laughs> uh, for me, um, one of the ways I practice um, abolition is through affirmations. Um, and, and the reason that is I have to one, not only um, affirm myself, but actually be able to affirm others. Um, because I have to break down and or get get away and or break down and or destroy the system about or the, the, you know the mindset that is just about me um, and what I'm going to do and how I have everything and it's all it's okay for me to step on others to um, be able to accomplish my whatever goal I have and to find, a sense of acceptance with that to say, well, if I have to lie, cheat, steal, destroy you to be on top, then that's okay. But when I could look at you and affirm you, see your value, see your potential, all right? And then understand that I don't have to stoop to that level, right? That's why the affirmation with them in myself saying, you don't have to become that just to be successful. Right, that um, is my way of practicing abolition. That's really beautiful. I I kind of I think about going back to something that I mentioned just really recently about um, parenting, right? Or in our households, um, our household. I don't know if y'all know this. Our household is like a unique experience because it's me and my spouse and our two teenage kids and our dog, and then we also live with my sister, her spouse, and kid, and then my mom's here most of the time. So, um, it's like a big there, you know, it's a, it's a wild ride, but, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's great. Right. But there is definitely a lot of us that have a lot of competing needs and experiences. The house we're lucky is like big enough for us, but like we're bursting at the seams a little bit, right? Like it's, it's, there's, you know, there's a lot of energy here, especially with toddlers and teenagers. And so, 
figuring out in our daily lives, like how do we exist together? How can we find ways to communicate our needs, but also holding the needs of others? How can we say like in our daily, like little lives, how can we, instead of punishing each other, um, which is what the carceral state would have us do instead of punishing each other with passive aggressiveness, how do we sit down in a family meeting and be like, please push the chairs in. I love you. We all live here. I don't want to be mad at you. Push the chairs in, right? Like again, with like the, the tiny, tiny little interactions, the fractals that echo, but like the way that we treat one another, the way that, you know, and I don't always practice this, right? Like when my spouse and I have a misunderstanding, sometimes I'll just like snap right back and be like, how could you say that you're terrible? Right. When it's like a, a definitely a misunderstanding. I know he's not terrible. Um, but like, there's this, there's this thing that has been so prevalent in our culture to sort of punish one another, uh, instead of having patience with, an, with one another and holding each other accountable, but with this space for grace and transformation and sort of, uh, a economy of enough, right. Of abundance mm-hmm. where, where there is enough for all of us, as long as we might have to be creative, but it's there and we can figure it out together. So I would say I have learned maybe the most about abolition from living in a house like this. Also just parenting my kids. Like I definitely, like I had good parents, like I'm not trying to like hate on them, but I definitely grew up with stuff like getting grounded, you know, or there were rules that were imposed on me that I didn't have a say in. That was just like the, I think that's how most people parent. And that's like the predominant way of parenting. And so my spouse and I, along with our kids try to figure out like, what's a different way forward? What is a way where we can come together, you know, all of us and say, I can say as mom, like, here's my concerns. Here's what I'm afraid of for you. And then my kids can say, what about this solution? Right. And we come up with sort of like rules and guidelines together. And then inevitably when things, you know, sometimes don't go the way we expect, or when people make mistakes, we can say, instead of my job, my job is not to like punish you. Right. And my job is not even necessarily to teach you a lesson. My job is to like hold and support you and be on your team so that together we can figure it out. And you're never like left out there in the cold, right? Like I'm your mom. I got your back. Um, we don't have to be, there's doesn't have to be like, it's not an us versus them thing. And I think that's very, that's a very abolition sort of thing, right? Like it's not us versus them. It's all of us together. It's all of our health and wholeness together. So, um, the pandemic has given me an opportunity to really lean into that. Right. Like I, I think I'm a person who loves to think like theory or like, right. I'm a pastor. I'm like, Oh, the mysteries of the cosmos and ancient texts and like, (laughs) and it can be like a little bit like that. Um, and, and I think about the world a lot, right. Like I think really big and the pandemic has been terrible, but one thing that has helped me practice is being faithful to that abolitionist lens in, in, in the little things, in, in the people, in my most intimate relationships, the people that I love, that I'm most near to, um, building that kind of deep community within my own home. That is Thank so you beautiful. Thank so much um, for that. You brought back so many memories, whereas I'm now asking myself as a culture with us stepping away from that. Um, almost looking at it as a negative to have all of the family together like that, right? Um, Like, should we just go back to that and welcome that? Because you got not only, it's not only multi-generational, but it's also individuals in a different roles, not only being able to share, but learning how 
to truly deal with one another instead of saying, I don't have to deal with you. And I could be over here in my fed, five bedroom, three car garage, five, five baths, and everything is okay with just one person um, staying here because this is all mine for me and I don't have to deal with nobody, right? Um, yeah, so that, that because I, I remember having to wait in line for a fork to eat and then understanding that that was okay because I, I was eating and it's like standing there saying, hurry up, right? Because <laughs> we all got to eat versus, uh, you know, so yeah, that helped a whole lot. Thank you so much for that. I think about it too, of like, you know, there's the, the moments of like, you know, the family me meeting and being like, please push your chair in please for the love of God. Um, but the payoff, right. Is like, Hey, when we talk about like me having my own five bedroom house all to myself and it's like quiet and there's like, whatever, um, you know, that sounds nice, except for, you know, what I would really miss is I would really miss my nephew asking TT to play hide and seek. And I would really miss our family karaoke nights. And I would really miss that. Like I cook sometimes, but for everybody, but plenty of other times, other people cook too. And so, um, it's about, it's in, it's in sort of learning to deal with each other in those moments of tension that we are able to reap the rewards of like the wild party. That's so good. So much wisdom. Um, I just, I want to say this and I'll, I'll ask the last question, but I just spent about two months in, in Texas with my family and I live alone. And so I just came, I just got back. And the, the transition, the adjustment from being so with my family, like 24 hours, seven days a week, and then coming and just like being alone, I felt that. Um, so you, you, do, you do miss something um, when in, in that dynamic. Um, but so last question, um, I kind of have an idea of, I think what you all might say here, but what brings you joy and laughter? <laughs> Uh, I'll say multiple things. Um, I can it's not just one, but it's being able to truly see other people happy and not have so much weight on things. Um, it's not that serious, all right? We could laugh, we can eat ice cream, we could joke. Everything is really funny. Um, you don't have to take everything too serious, right? Um, just sometimes being able to look at each other's face, not only to say I love you, but you know what, you're funny to me, right? Uh, so that that that's what that's what it is for me. I think there's you know like the obvious things like the people we love, right, bring, bring me joy. But I um I've been on this kick lately about the importance of low stakes creative outlets, right? Like I have a lot of creative outlets that are about like you know writing or preaching, but that's a little bit like, uh, pastor, oh, please interpret this ancient text. And what is God saying to us? That doesn't feel low stakes to me. Right. Like it's creative, but I'm like, oh damn. Um, and so I like these moments of like low stakes, creative outlets. Like, I don't know, I baked like focaccia bread. Right. And I did like the trendy thing where you like use little vegetables to like make flowers on them and stuff. Right. Like that kind of stuff where you're like, it's an, it was an act of love for my family. It made me happy. It was creative. And like the worst thing that could have gone wrong is that it didn't turn out. And it was like a little risk I could take a little creative outlet. And it just gave me a lot of, a lot of joy because so often, um, so much of our work is unfinished and it's really nice to like start a recipe, 
bake some bread and then the bread is done and then we eat it and we see like the the results of our labor right so those are the kind of things right now that i'm really leaning into that give me joy i have to say that it's funny to me to think like there is high stakes creativity and there is low stakes creativity and i'm laughing internally because i'm like she's a pastor and she's talking about making bread of life. (laughs) 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 I was like, I don't know, something about those two images paired together. I'm going to probably have to think about that for, for a minute moving forward. Um, But thank you both so much for being here, for sharing your wisdom, for just like pouring into ourselves, our listeners in this conversation on something that, sounds easier than it actually is. Um, and thank you for expanding our thought processes on this. I, um, I, well, actually not I, G and I have one final question to ask, which is how can people find you subscribe, follow, um, just learn more from you. They can go to, um, www.eatchicago.org. Um, that's our website. They could, everything is right there. So that's the best way. Yeah. My personal website is ldow.com and you can find me on most of the socials as well. I love to hear from you all and learn from you all. Um, so yeah, looking forward to a continued conversation. Oh, I guess I should plug my book. My book is baptized in tear gas. It's from Broadleaf Books. I don't make any money off of the book. All of the money from the sales of the book, whether that's print, ebook, or audiobook, all go to Black liberation organizations, activists, political prisoners, family members who've lost loved ones to state violence. So um, for anyone, but particularly if you're like a white church person, that's the intended audience. And it's a book that talks about my own transformation. I wasn't born an abolitionist, um, my own transformation into an abolitionist and from a faith-based lens. And at the end of each chapter, there's reflection questions and action items. So be great for your church too. Sounds like if you are a white person in church, you should be giving this to everyone. (laughs) Buy it, give it. It sounds like a great read for Easter listeners we'd love to hear from you and what you're learning so please share with us on social media using the hashtag abolition as resurrection at the end of the series we want to create a community mural that captures our collective vision of abolition as resurrection We're looking forward to seeing what we can create and learn together. The Abolition as Resurrection Lent and Easter miniseries is hosted in collaboration with the Solidarity Building Initiative at McCormick Theological Seminary.